All right, my friends, if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. The verse I read for Hannah was at the very end of chapter 8. We're not quite there yet. We're right in the middle. And actually, you're going to notice that this doesn't match up with what's in your bulletin. In your bulletin, it says that we're going to start in verse 18. But I realized... I realized this weekend that I needed to include verse 17. It's very important. It's a hinge verse. I should have known that early on in the week. I just, you know, got so taken with the neat paragraph division and uh, decided that um, I would just do starting in verse 18. But, you know, rookie mistake. You live, you learn. We're going to start in verse 17. And by the way, too, there was another little mistake in the bulletin. Not so much a mistake, but just something that was late developing. And that is, you know, Natalia was up here joining, but her name wasn't in the bulletin. And I and actually think not on the slide either. So, Natalia, we're sorry that it didn't get in there. It was because it was late developing. But, um, hey, you still fully a member of the church. I hope you don't think that's like three quarters or anything. So. If you would, stand for the reading of God's word if you're able, and let's follow along as I read out loud for us these verses from Romans 8, starting, like I said, in verse 17. Here we go. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in here would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, we ask it and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. Guys, I'm realizing that I didn't do the announcements that I had prepared, which ordinarily I'd say like, ah, it's no big deal. We'll just catch it next week. But I really want to make sure you know about um, uh, a Vespers fellowship meal that we've got planned for July 24th, which is just a couple of weeks away. So we're actually going to be having a missions moment that Sunday where our very own Chandler Connor is going to be sharing about his ministry with international students at Chico State. And then we're going to have a meal in the fellowship hall afterwards to hear more from Chandler and just to be able to hang out and eat and fellowship with each other. So uh, I've got a little blurb about that on the back of the bulletin, but just wanted to give you a heads up that that is happening. Everything else you should be able to find on the link tree. Um, so let's 
get into, oh, yes, thank you there. There's our link to the link tree, but then also there's the QR code in the back. Oh, and actually, why I'm at it with announcements, let me say this. I see a lot of new faces that I haven't met before, so it could be that some of you guys would be interested in our welcome card, which you can access through this little QR code, the one with the cute little dinosaur right in the middle. It takes you right to a welcome card that allows you to introduce yourself to us, find out more about the church, or even get a chance to to grab a coffee with me to hear more or have a prayer request that you could share, whatever, sky's the limit. If you're new or newish, you can access that through the little QR code on the inside of the bulletin. I hope you do. It would be awesome to meet you. Okay, back to Romans. So, when you're preparing for a sermon, your prep can take you lots of different places. Uh, big, thick commentaries. Uh, old theological treatises, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, or it could take you to Sesame Street, which is where this is coming this week. Do you guys know this? One of these things is not like the other? Anybody? Okay, Tim. A anybody else? What about this side of the room? Okay, a few. Uh, Maybe some of the, the older folks in the room, sadly. Okay, so this was one of, the, um, one of the hits from the Sesame Street soundtrack. One of these things is not like the other one. I would sing the song, but I'm too embarrassed to do that right now. Challenge accepted. One of these things is not like the other one. Um, I cede the floor to the, the madam on the front row. Wow, Joy, beautiful. Yes, Joy's got the song, and you know what goes on. What's the very last lyric is you got to figure it out before the song ends. So if you don't know anything about what's going on here, let me tell you. There's four things that the show would show you, all of these objects, and three of them are similar, one of them is not so much. So, a cat. A dog, a rabbit, and a pizza. And you've got to figure out before the song ends which one is not like the other one. Now, of course, four-year-old me, I'd, I'd watch that and I'd think about it way too deeply. I'd be like stroking my beard before I had one and be like, well, the pizza and the rabbit, maybe there's some similarity there. I was terrible at that game. But here's where this is coming from this week. I'm reading one of those dusty old theological books, a British theologian from the 20th century. He's talking about Romans 8. And, you know, this is well before Sesame Street, so he could not have known this. He finishes a paragraph by saying, the Apostle Paul clearly wants us to see that one of these things is not like the other one. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and all of a sudden I have this flashback going back 30 years to five-year-old me with my peanut butter and jelly with the crust cut off in front of the TV, watching Sesame Street, singing this song, failing it miserably, my older sister laughing at me. And I said, I think I've got the theme for this sermon. I think I know what I want to talk about. That one of these things is not like the other one. And actually, that's why verse 17 is so crucial for us to include. Let me throw out to you four key words that came from verse 17. And tell me which one of these things is not like the other one. So we saw in this verse, children. We saw in that verse, 
heirs. That's H-E-I-R-S, one who inherits a great inheritance. So children, heirs, glory, and suffering. Which one of those things is not like the other one? Don't overthink it like I did when I was five. It's suffering. All the other ones were like, ooh, this looks good. I'm getting excited. And then we're told that we suffer with Christ. And granted, this isn't a game at this point, guys. What's being described here is real life and real life for followers of Jesus. And even though suffering sticks out like a sore thumb, we are told that even though it's not like the other things, all of it is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Here's the thing, though. The main reason why that theologian I was reading said this phrase, the main reason why I've even brought it up today is not just because suffering sticks out in this passage. It's because suffering sticks out in a very unique way that maybe we haven't anticipated. Perhaps the reason we think that suffering sticks out and it's not like the other things is because it's bad and it's painful and it makes us feel uh, worse. But the reason the Apostle Paul gives for why suffering is not like the other things on that list is because compared to glory, compared to our adoption in Christ, compared to our inheritance, Suffering is like a drop in the bucket that doesn't even come close to comparing to the greatness of those other things. That's why it's not like the others. Verse 18, at the very beginning of our text, and I think I have it up here on the screen underlined, this really is the banner statement of everything that we read. It's this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing. There's another portion of the New Testament, it's in 2 Corinthians, where the same writer, the Apostle Paul, says it like this. He says, this light momentary affliction, which we are currently going through, is overshadowed by the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to the children of God. I said this earlier when I was preaching up in paradise in the morning that it could be very offensive to some of you guys in here to hear anyone can call your suffering light and momentary or a drop in the bucket compared to what's to come. Because if you're in the thick of suffering, you say, how dare you say it's light and then it's easy. It's not. It hurts. It's painful. Many of you guys in here were, were at the funeral yesterday of our ruling elder, Caleb Fleming, our dear friend whose father died way too early. That hurts. It's not the way it's supposed to be. How dare we call it light and momentary. I want you to hear me very carefully. What we're saying is not that suffering is in itself light and easy and no big deal. We're saying that in comparison to the greatness of what's to come, it doesn't hold a candle to your adoption, to your inheritance, to the glory that will be revealed to you in Christ. 
There's a distinction there. And it's a very important one to hold on to as a believer. Your light momentary affliction, as hard as it might be to hear that, truly doesn't hold a candle next to what's to come in Christ. And that's why one of these things is not like the other. Now, what I want to do sort of with this sermon today is kind of do the big picture and the more sort of zoomed in picture. The, the zoom out and the zoom in. And the good news is I've already done the zoom out part. So we're halfway through. <laughs> the zoom out, the big picture really is what we've been talking about with the, the theme statement and the fact that our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to the children of God. But now what I want to do is sort of zoom in to what the rest of these verses really were focusing on, and that is the why of suffering. So you, you might ask the question, okay, if we're adopted children of God, if God has lavished his love and affection on us in the way that the Bible talks about and the way that Pastor Josh has been talking about it for the last three weeks, why on earth would we be expected to suffer? And to walk through life with affliction and hardship and pain. That those, those two things don't seem to fit together at all. Well, much of what we read in this particular text is going to try to give us a why or an explanation for that. You've got it up here on the slide. Why do children of God suffer? Well, the first answer to that question that the text attempts is actually, it's the portion that's in starting in verse 20, and it's this. We as children of God can expect to suffer because we live in a fallen and broken world. So, beginning in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Let's stop there. When the Apostle Paul wants to answer the question, why do we experience suffering in this Christian life, his first response is not to look inward and talk about his own personal afflictions. His first instinct is to look outward and to look at the world around him, to look at creation itself, and to notice and see that this whole world is being defined by cycles of, of death and decay and decomposition. Do you notice that? It's said in the text that the creation itself is in bondage to corruption. What we see with our eyes in nature is this cycle of things falling apart. And even animals and organisms that were initially created to live in harmony and peacefully with human beings now are carriers of disease and pestilence. They're dangerous. Natural disasters like floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and, and, and uh, earthquakes and drought and famine and one that hits near and dear to many of us in here, wildfires, 
She can level a landscape and totally destroy a community. That's what Paul's reflecting on when he says the whole creation is in bondage to corruption and is crying out as in the pains of childbirth. I love how in this text, the, uh, Paul is he's personifying creation. He's giving it a voice like it's a person. And he's saying that it is groaning in pain, that it's crying out in labor pains. Which many of you moms in here could relate to in a way that I, well, <laughs> I was about to say probably can't, but I most certainly cannot. It's no probably about it. And creation is crying out like that because it knows better maybe even than we do that this is not the way it's supposed to be. The corruption, the decay, the decomposition, it's not the way that God intended and made it. And I know that because there's a little hint in our text. I read this to you already, but if we go back to verse 20, you see it. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly, it didn't do it willingly, it didn't do it on its own accord, but rather it was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it. Now this might be a little bit of a tricky question. The folks in paradise didn't do too well on this one. But who is the him in that verse? Who subjected the creation to futility? Who? Brad, well done. Us, but maybe more specifically, our representative, Adam, I heard it. That's the he that's being referred to here. So when Adam, our first parent, him and, and Eve, he's our representative, the representative of all humanity. When he disobeys God, it introduces sin and death into the world. And, and previously in Romans, we've talked about this and how it affected us as human beings how it, it introduced sin into our lives. It introduced brokenness into our lives and made us need reconciliation with God. But what this is telling us is that it's beyond that. When Adam disobeys God and sin enters the world, it has far-reaching effects, not just on humans, but even on the creation. The animals, the trees, the grass, the atmosphere, the very ground that we walk upon becomes subject to a curse. In Genesis 3, when God is pronouncing the curse of the fall on Adam and Eve, he tells Adam, the ground that used to work won't really cooperate with you anymore. You'll labor, the, the sweat of your brow, the toil of your labor will go into it, and yet the ground will produce thorns and thistles. And unless you attend it to it with great energy, things will fall apart. We already talked about how animal life and organisms that were supposed to be in harmony with human beings all of a sudden become dangerous and carriers of death. And we have all of creation that was meant for so much more because of our first ancestor's sin becomes fallen and broken and not the way it's supposed to be. There's a lot more we could say on this, but really why I'm introducing it to you here is for you to know that one of the answers to the question of why believers can expect suffering in this life is because we live in a world that is still broken and fallen. There's a day coming when the Lord will come and restore all things.
things and he'll bring the new heavens and the new earth and say, behold, I am making all things new. But until then, we're in a world that is still very broken. And suffering and affliction is born out of that. It's not the only reason, though. And if we keep reading in our text, we'll see another one. And uh, Alex, you can go on to the next slide here. The second reason that's given is that the fullness of our adoption is still yet to come. So I've got verse 23 listed up there. Let me read it for you and, and actually might have it underlined on the slide. It says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly, or excuse me, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is really confusing because for the last two weeks, I have proclaimed till I'm blue in the face that you are adopted, beloved children of God. Like seriously, I was like a broken record the last two weeks. I'm putting the sermon up online. I'm like, man, I really need a thesaurus to learn some new words. Just adoption, adoption, beloved child of God. I said it a lot, and yet here we are in the very next paragraph, and we're told that we are awaiting our adoption as children of God. Which one is it? Am I an adopted child now, or am I eagerly looking forward to the day when I'll become an adopted child? What's going on here is one of the many ways and places where the Bible asked us to grapple with this concept that we've referred to before as church as the already and the not yet. There is an already about what Jesus has accomplished in the gospel, but there's also a not yet element. How those very same things are yet to be consummated in their fullness. And so it, all of this comes because we live in this very interesting time. We're sort of sandwiched in this moment in history where we live after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, but we live before his return. And so there's many things that we live in the already of because he accomplished it with his death and resurrection. But since he is yet to come back, we still have this not yet. So much so that it's like we have a foot in both worlds of experiencing the reality of one thing, but also awaiting the future consummation of it. The kingdom of God is in your midst today, Jesus says. But then later he tells his disciples to pray for it to arrive. You are sanctified, you are holy and blameless in the sight of God, but then immediately after that, the New Testament writers will tell you, work for your salvation. Or excuse me, I shouldn't have said salvation there. Work for your sanctification. Elders, don't fire me. I did not, that was, that was a slip. Work for your sanctification, not your salvation. Salvation is by grace alone. But work it out with fear and trembling, growing in obedience and righteousness and mercy and goodness. And then, of course, your adoption. We saw it right here. You have the first fruits of the Spirit, verse 23 says. The Spirit that is testifying in your heart that you are a beloved child of God. And yet, you are looking forward to a day when the fullness of your adoption will happen. When Jesus returns. When he publicly declares that you are his beloved child. 
And according to the text, you received the redemption of your bodies. That was the, the follow-up to this, right? When it says, we are eagerly awaiting our adoption as sons, and then comma, the redemption of our bodies. And I think the reason why it's written like that is because Paul's trying to say, guys, you're experiencing adoption today in your mind, in your spirit, in your soul, but there's a day coming where your adoption will extend even to this broken and frail body that we're in. Even to this body that's so prone to break down and decay, our adoption is going to affect even that. And this body that is prone to all the fleshly brokenness of the world, temptation and sin and rebellion, there is a day coming when this body that was created for, for good, noble ends is going to finally do that in the way that God intended. That is when you'll experience the fullness of your adoption. But until then, as we live in the already and the not yet, of the already adopted, but adoption, the fullness of it yet to come, until then, there is friction. There is tension. And the already sometimes rubs against the not yet, and it's painful. It exposes us to suffering and anguish. And sometimes the reason why is because we're reaping the consequences of our own foolish sin. A lot of suffering we endure as Christians, if we really trace it back, it's because of really foolish things that we did. Just being honest. Sometimes that suffering is because of the tension in somebody else's already and not yet, and they sin against us, and it hurts. And we know they're our brother and sister, and we want to bear with them in patience, but the reality is they really wounded us. Or sometimes maybe the tension is just purely the fact that this frail body is sort of lagging behind what God's doing inwardly in my spirit. And that hurts. Whatever it might be, one of the ways we answer that question, why can children of God expect suffering in this life? It's because the fullness of our adoption is yet to come. But it's one of the things that we wait for with hope and eagerness, according to the text. Now, I do want to mention, I was sort of sad, I didn't have time to get into this one element of the text that I just want to tell you real briefly, and that's this. When you read through this, and Paul talks about create, the creation waiting with eagerness, what the creation is waiting for is when we get the fullness of our adoption. Did you notice that in the text? What all of the world is so excited about is when we are redeemed and renewed, our bodies are redeemed, and we begin to relate to creation in the way that we were designed to before the fall. That's what the creation is waiting for, which I think is kind of cool and definitely is worthy of a whole sermon by itself. But can't do that today. Going to move on and just throw that out for you to talk amongst yourselves like, that would just make my day as if I'm cleaning up after church and y'all are here chatting with each other and I overhear people being like, what would you think about verse 24 when it talks about the creation? Like, oh, man. Oh, a boy can dream, can he? Well, before I get to dreaming, let's do this last number three. This is the final thing I'm going to share with you guys. And now we're running out of time here. And it's this, the why of suffering. Why did the children of God suffer? It's because... 
we share in the sufferings of Jesus. If we're united to Jesus, that means we're united to everything about him. His life, his righteousness, his peace, his goodness. But guess what? He is also known as the man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. We share in that too. Verse 17, another reason why I really wanted this in here. After the little parenthetical mark, it says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We suffer with Christ. If we're in Christ, that means that we are united to him in all things. And like I said before, that means united even in his suffering. Think of the life of Jesus. Think of the path that he walked. It was a path of rejection and mockery. It was a path of injustice. It was a path of being abandoned even by his closest friends at one point. And I'm not saying that that precisely is what every Christian will walk through in their life, but if this is the Jesus that we said, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you go, he says, great, but buckle up because I'm about to go to some gnarly places. And if you want to follow me, that's where you'll be following me too. And the why of why Christians, of all people, adopted children of God can expect suffering and affliction in this life is because we have cast our lot with Jesus. We have hitched our cart to his wagon. And Jesus is a man well acquainted with suffering. In case you think that this is a a wild, random extrapolation from this text, read through any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you will see this very point coming out of the lips of Jesus himself over and over and over again. It's easy to overlook it or easy to read it in the devotional when things aren't going that hard or difficult even. But it's there. I learned that in a very powerful way years ago. Um, I've told this story before at church, but I can't remember how long ago it's been. It might be fresh to some of y'all. But early on in my time as a pastor, there was somebody that I knew that uh, went through just some horrible life changes, and they, they blamed me for it. And they convinced themselves that I did, did some horrible things to them and their family. And they began to publicly speak about these horrible things that I had done to other people in our community. Thankfully, uh, I think everybody who heard that um, was well aware that that wasn't the case. And it was very easily uh, seen, whether that was true or not. It wasn't a he said, he said situation. It was something that could be verified and shown to be false. But even so, I was so mad and so scared, really, of just the idea that somebody could just lie about you and put everything about your life and career in jeopardy. And, and just to be clear here, my anger was not just directed towards this person or the situation. My anger, first and foremost, it was directed at God. 
Because I think in my mind, I was saying like, Lord, I, I've dedicated myself to be a pastor. I've dedicated myself to, to serve and to care to people, to do that with integrity to the best of my ability. And this is how I'm repaid? This is what you allow to happen, God? That ain't right. And I remember saying all of this on a phone call with my mom. And after I had just, you know, probably talked without taking a break for 25 minutes, there's silence. And then she says this. She says, son, you're a follower of Jesus. What did you expect? And it just hit me between the eyes. And all of a sudden, all these words of Christ and the gospels come coming back to me. Jesus looks out his disciples and he says, if they've treated me, the master, like this, how much more so will they treat you, the servants? What did you expect? And just to be clear, Jesus doesn't take us into these places of suffering because he's punishing us or he wants to test us or make sure that we're legit. No. He takes us to those places because he says, hey, this is where I got to go. If you're with me, you're coming too. And those days, years ago, when I was so angry, I was, I was shocked. I was blindsided by the injustice of it all, but I really shouldn't have been. I had cast my lot with Jesus. And he was a man who knew very well what it was to be falsely accused, to be slandered, to be mocked. And he had made it very clear in his gospel that if the world treated him like that, how much more so would it treat me like that? Why do the children of God suffer? It's because we share in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That is the end of our zoom in of the whys of suffering. It brings us back full circle. At least I want to come full circle back to the big banner statement at the beginning, though. Remember, remember those happier times like 20 minutes ago where we were singing Sesame Street songs? Wasn't that great? Let's end there. And even though we've just gotten into the nitty-gritty of the affliction and the anguish of suffering, remember the point this whole section of Scripture is making. It wasn't about the nitty-gritty details of suffering. Why was all this here? To tell you that none of your sufferings are worth comparing to the greatness of the glory that's on the way for you as a child of God. Even, even preparing to tell you that story about when I was unjustly accused, it made me feel so gross and mad and disillusioned. I still feel that some days. But it's like a drop in the bucket compared to my adoption as a child of God and the glory that will be revealed on the last day when the Lord publicly declares, Josh Lee, you are my beloved child. You're with me. Nothing holds a candle to that. And truthfully, that might be the power of this metaphor that Paul gives that we've talked about a little bit but not much when he says, 
The creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And then he says, even we are groaning as in the pains of childbirth. You moms in here, those of you that have had kids, the pains of labor are some of the most intense pain you've ever been through in your life, right? Amen. I heard an amen from both sides of the room. It's intense. It is. I know many husbands have told me it was horrifying for me, and I wasn't even going through it. Yet tell me, thinking about your kids, that maybe Marion or Monica's an adult now. Joy, your kids are adults. Or you mamas that are holding your babies in the congregation right now. That pain was intense, but was it worth it? Was the joy of your children, seeing them as babies now, or if you're an empty nester, seeing them grow up and have children of their own, the joy of your kids worth going through that pain? I think you'd say yes. Unless you have teenagers, maybe you're on the fence. <laughs> but ultimately, once they're out of that phase, you'll say, absolutely. Let's pray. Lord, it's a sobering thing to talk about suffering. I feel so foolish standing up here in front of people speaking with boldness about affliction and suffering, knowing that I can be such a coward when I look at it in my life. I can be so fragile when I see things falling apart, when I see friends and family suffering, when I feel it myself. Lord, it's hard. We get what this text says when it talks about creation groaning like in childbirth. It hurts. And yet, Lord, please, please, please let us hear your promise and hold fast to the truth that that suffering that can hurt so bad is like nothing compared to the greatness of the glory that awaits us. It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.